0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The three trainings uh, are the three categories that are supposed to encompass all of uh, Buddhist uh, practice. So three three areas of practice in Buddhism. And the first one is the sila, ethics. The second is uh, called samadhi, which is usually translated as um, uh, meditation in this context or um, cultivating the mind. And then the third one is Panya, which is usually translated as wisdom. And there are certainly other ways of translating these words. Uh, Dalai Lama has a book on these three trainings and his title for the book is Kindness, Clarity, and Wisdom. So what we might translate it as ethics, he calls kindness, What he what what is uh, uh meditation he calls uh, clarity and um and then wisdom is wisdom so um uh, I think that part of what motivates me to give this talk it was an attempt to explore what I think is an important topic for our times. I believe that uh our society and our world is changing so much these days that uh it uh, would be useful to reassess or re, uh, rethink uh, what uh, Buddhist ethics is and how it works. And, uh, and probably, uh, as I study these things, that uh, some of the more modern interpretations of Buddhist ethics probably are, are ready for a new interpretation, a new understanding of how this works in our lives because of how much our society is changing. So I'll get to that in a little bit. So three trainings. Uh, what's interesting about these three trainings are um, the, uh, they not only encompass all the Buddhist tra- all the Buddhist practices, but they also meant to encompass three major areas, maybe all areas of human life, and uh, you know for an individual. The first one, Sila, has to do with our behavior. The second, Samadhi, has to do with the state or quality of our inner life or mind. And uh, wisdom has to do uh, with uh, the quality of how we see and understand the world. So the first is behavior. The second is the quality or state of how we are on the inside. Uh, And then the third is then how we view, how we see the world we live, uh, uh, how we understand it. And that kind of covers most things. Um, now, it's a little bit unusual, perhaps, in, uh, in the way that we often talk about sila to hear that it's about behavior. It's very common to translate sila as virtue. And uh, virtue ethics is a very popular in, in kind of in Western philosophy. And virtue has to do with kind of inner qualities, how you are. You have virtuous qualities. You have a generosity. You have kindness. You have... Uh, you know, compassion, different things. And so the measure of it all is, again, how you are on the inside. uh, And that motivates or inspires certain behavior. But what's important is to measure the quality of your virtue. Related to this idea of virtue is the idea that uh, Buddhist ethics is centered on intentionality. That uh, somehow that uh, is the intentions we have that define uh, whether, the, whether something is ethical or not ethical. And that I want to question, if that's adequate in the world that we're living in now. And that this has to be looked at more carefully. So, um, so these three areas, and so sila literally means behavior. And so in more recent times, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the great translator of the ancient texts, Buddhist texts, um, has been translating the word sila as virtuous behavior. And so, you know, he, he didn't used to. used to. For a while, he translated it as virtue. And then as he thought about it more, I guess, he thought it's really about behavior, so now he does virtuous behavior. And um, that's probably fine. The emphasis is on the behavior, how we act and how we speak. So I want to read to you uh, an ancient uh, commentary about um, Sila. And it's uh, translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi before he, he changed it to virtuous behavior. He's still using the word virtue here. Um, virtue should be reflected upon as the basis for rapture and joy, as granting immunity from fear of self-reproach, the reproach of others, and punishment. Virtue should be reflected on as praise by the wise, as the root cause for freedom from remorse and the basis of safety. That's pretty good. So now uh, if we read it again with Bhikkhu Bodhi's newer translation as virtuous behavior, I think you get a little different flavor of it. Virtuous behavior should be reflected upon as the basis for rapture and joy as granting immunity from fear of self-reproach, the repro- reproach of others, and punishment. It should be reflected upon as, the, as praised by the wise, as the root cause for freedom from remorse, as a basis for safety. So now it's the behavior that does all these things. And, um, and so, you know, it's a little bit disconcerting for some people to hear the emphasis on behavior, uh, it's particularly disconcerting maybe for uh, someone who grew up in the 60s that uh, that's the emphasis, because there was uh, kind of rebellion against all kinds of behavior that was insisted upon, kind of normative behavior, that was, seemed for many of us back then very hypocritical. They didn't have any, any roots in, or in sincerity in how we really were, and we're kind of forced to kind of fit into certain modes of behavior that didn't seem right. And so there was kind of a rebellion against behaviors as being the definition of what was of ethics, and uh, and more kind of what it feels, to the radical and the kind of extreme moments had to do with whether it feels right. And whether it feels right, that has some wisdom to it if your ability to feel is really deep. <laughs> but if it's not very deep, you know, it just feels good, you know, <laughs> you know then, you know, party time. <laughs> so um, so this idea of behavior. Um, in this uh, emphasis on early ethics, there's a particular form of behavior that's called uh, guarding the sense doors. And sometimes people will call it restraining the sense doors. And the idea of restraint for someone who grew up in the 60s is particularly... <laughs> uninvited, and un, you know, unwelcome. and welcome, uh, because you know, you want to just if it feels good, do it. And so, uh, but the literal word is to protect, protect, pr- protection at the sense doors, and the idea of this protection is not restraint, not turning your eyes down, and not looking at anything, so you get caught by the sense world out there, the bulletin boards and attractive people, or attractive iPhones, or whatever it might be, that uh, you actually, w- in the world, participating world, seeing, sensing, experiencing the world, but you're watching at the place where you see and hear and taste and all that to make sure that there's no grasping. We don't cling or tighten around anything. That's what the protection is. There's also no pronoun, as far as I can tell, in the protection idea. What are we protecting? One of the things we're protecting, uh, and this becomes true for people who begin meditating, is we're protecting something that's precious inside. We're protecting a quality of of beauty, of a capacity for the heart to thrive. There's a word in Pali that I think is best translated by the English word thrive, vipula. And um, it's to grow, to increase, to develop, just the same kind of uh, meanings that go with the word thrive. But thrive really has a kind of uh, enlivening, invigorating kind of feeling. What what helps the the heart, the inner life to thrive, to be beautiful, to be something that's a refuge for ourselves? As we meditate, we begin discovering that. We calm down, we stop being so harsh in ourselves, we stop being so preoccupied, stressed out, and we start discovering there's something really good that lives inside of us, and that is uh, obscured by grasping and clinging. And so when we grasp to the sense doors, to what goes on, then we obscure this beauty, what lets us thrive. Um, uh, But also, because there's no pronoun connected to it, it's also a way of protecting others and uh, and you know it's generally a good idea to live a life that protects others as well. That's uh, the Buddha actually has this wonderful instructions. He said, "Make yourself safe for others." Isn't that? And I'm inspired by that idea. Make yourself safe from others. Bhikkhubodhi translates that as "make yourself a refuge for others," but the literal meaning is uh, safe. Uh, make yourself safe for others. So go through the world and not, not only don't cause harm, but a higher kind of call, which is be, be safe for other people as you go through this world. But to be safe, to be someone who's safe, who doesn't cause harm, to be some, to be someone who has discovered something inside that's it's worth protecting, something beautiful and valuable. The, uh, the second uh, training, the training in samadhi, training and developing our inner life is really crucial. And the two go hand in hand. That uh, how we are on the inside affects how we behave in the world outside of us. It's not, I think it's generally recognized that when people are, oh, there's an expression now, hangry. <laughs> Have you ever been hangry? It's a, a kind of an acronym, right, for, what is it, hungry, Ang- hungry and angry, right? Well, that's not, yeah, hungry and angry. But if you're hungry and angry and tired and thirsty and frustrated, the chance of doing something unethical, saying something that's mean or harmful to others, uh, goes up dramatically, even for the person who normally is maybe the most ethical person you, can, you, you know. And so uh, to be safeguard ourselves... So we don't allow ourselves to get to the place where we're hangry. We don't get to the place where we have the stressed out inner life, where we're, tr- we're just triggered to behave in ways that are not, you know, not good. For some people that just means don't be mean in how you speak. For some people in our society it means don't shoot someone. And uh, because there are people who have guns and uh, Jacques Verdin, who comes and speaks here, he, he works with lifers in the prison who are there because they killed someone, and he asks them uh, that he has you know, hundreds and hundreds of them he 's worked with now and, and uh, helped with their inner transformation, and he trains them and, he, fo- focuses and say, how? he does this wonderful thing. he says he has groups of about 30 men who work together at any given time who are lifers, and he has them uh, announce how many years they 've been in, in prison. And then he adds it all up for the 330 men, and usually they get to somewhere in the average of 700 years that collectively they've been in prison. And then he says, what is the, uh, uh, w- uh, how long was the period of imminent danger? Meaning, how long was the period in which you were in danger of committing your crime?" And most of them, the crime, what they did, killing someone, was rather impulsive, was the thing of the moment. And some, you know, they, sometimes they were in terms of, mi- of seconds. So they add that up, those 30 men. How, many, mo- how long was the period of imminent danger? And I forget exactly you know, what numbers, but it's, it's in the range of about seven minutes for 30 murderers. Isn't that something? Seven minutes versus 700 years. That's quite a trade-off. So one of the things he teaches uh, his men in the prison is to pay attention to the moments of imminent danger and uh, and learn to recognize them and learn how to see it coming, learn how to take care of oneself so that they don't kind of fall, go, you know, go overboard with it and do something they don't So the same thing happens to people who are you know, just simply mean in what they say to their spouse or someone is that chances are that there was a moment of imminent danger. And to recognize when we're frustrated, impatient, hungry, hangry, whatever it might be, and then be able to recognize that and be careful is good. But what's even better and more important, I think, is not just simply to um, recognize when we're in danger, but to actually cultivate the opposite to cultivate an inner quality of being that is not just simply not going to be triggered uh, you know, in harmful ways, but is actually going to be inspired to do completely the opposite, inspired to do the things which are generous, to do the things which are kind, to do the things that are you know, supportive for other people and nice to other people. I don't know if this is the best example to give, but it's on my mind because it just happened. I was um, in Berkeley last week, early in the morning, and this man came up to me with a hospital band on his wrist, and he, sa- he held out his hand with a bunch of coins in it, and he said, um, you know, can you give me some money? I just came out of hospital, and I'm hungry, and I have nowhere to go, and... So I didn't know, you know, sometimes, that's a nice story. So, who knows? And, um, you know, he had almost no teeth and seemed a bit ragged. So, I I was actually on the phone on the sidewalk when he came up and I said, just wait a minute. I I got to say, just wait a minute. I wanted to finish my phone call. So, he kind of, you know, there was his corner, so he was there and he wasn't wasn't going anywhere. And... uh, and so I finished my phone call and then I gave him $5. And um, so that was nice. You know, I kind of thought that, you know, I looked at my wallet. That's what I had that was nice to give him. And I felt good about it. Just, you know, simple thing to do. But how he responded to me made my day. I was so happy. I mean, it, it, he like just lit up. Like so happy, so relieved. So like, wow, that was a great thing. First, he fist bumped me, <laughs> and then he wanted to give me a hug, which I, twice, which I kind of went along with, but he also told me that he was in the hospital for pneumonia. <laughs> so I, I wasn't so enthusiastic. <laughs> and, um, and then he happily went off, left his corner. So, anyway, so this idea the reason I'm telling you the story is. Um, is how I benefited from that, that somehow it was like food for me to see his joy, his delight, his warmth, his generosity to me in in being grateful? what a great thing that I benefited from that probably more than than uh, he benefited maybe who knows so um, so what, what you know what inner quality, what way of being, what kind of inner clarity to use? Dalai Lama's language uh, develops your capacity to want to respond to the world in that kind of way rather than shutting down and feeling unsafe and all that. And this is the function of meditation practice, one of the functions to develop this inner life, to have something precious, valuable, beautiful that's worth protecting, worth living from, that inspires you, that's, that really, wow, this is good, rather than looking inside and finding. Someone who's a taskmaster or harsh or hostile even to oneself in in how we speak to ourselves. Look inside and find someone who's, you know, kind to oneself, supportive of oneself, supportive of the world. You know, find feelings of joy and delight and peacefulness and beautiful qualities. So these two go hand in hand. So behavior. So how this works in our modern world. What's the... So one of the things I was thinking about is the way in which um, uh, there's so much uh, news, that so-called news that's spread, um, that um, is not accurate, that's fake, they say. Whether it's spread in some of the news outlets or spread in social media, it's having a huge impact on our society and, the, uh, and even some of the newspapers that I like reading um, because, you know, they have a political slant that I kind of like. You know, when I read some of these articles, I question, wow. And I, there's really? Where did they get this idea from? And just a few times I've even gone and done some research to learn more about a particular topic. And wait a minute. I'm not sure about this. You know, maybe they're kind of just spinning as well. And... Um, And so how much can we trust the media? How much can we trust what we read? Is a huge topic in our society. When I was in fifth grade or sixth grade, I had this wonderful teacher uh, who um, I think it was like Reader's Digest. Uh, uh, Something like Reader's Digest would have these articles about the world and politics. And there was an article about Russia back then, Soviet Union. And he wanted to teach us how to read the news and reports to be able to see how it wasn't always accurate. You know, this was 1965 or 66. So this has been kind of going, going, going on for a while. It's just much more intensified in the modern world. So if we can't be, because of how important it is to be careful with what we read, one of the ways to be careful is to be very careful, heightened care in how we behave as a result of it. And so what we say and what we do. And so Buddhist ethics, sila, has to do with our behavior. It becomes increasingly important to speak in ways that are truthful, that are helpful, beneficial, that are kind, and that are, are, that are timely. If what you have to say is not true, or you, you're, you doubt whether it's true, if what you say is really doesn't benefit the world, if it's not kind, and if it's not the right time to say it, the Buddha's instructions are, don't say it. Wait until it's true. Wait until it's a beneficial time to say it. Wait until it's, you can say it in a kind way. And wait until the right time to say it. So if we can be, have to be careful, if we can't be sure of what we're reading, hopefully we can be sure about what we, how we speak. This is so important because we have the tremendous amount of uh, mean-spirited communication going on in our society. I'm just astounded by the degree of it. Um, you know, Certainly on social media, certainly on comments on the news, certainly in you know, all kinds of ways. And I think if people feel like they have permission to speak this way, not only permission, but it has a certain cachet. It has a certain kind of sense of empowerment and, and, uh, and feeling you're right and belonging and creating a sense of self and other, which is enlivening for people. Enlivening is not inner thriving. And so if you don't have a sense of what inner thriving is and you're relying on being enlivened, then it's a shallow world from what you do so and then there's behavior of what we do with our bodies, and so the the five precepts become increasingly important. There was one uh, teacher who said that um, uh, not having the five precepts as part of your life is like buying a really nice new car that you're going to just love to drive around in, but um You didn't, uh, you didn't, you wanted to save some money for it. So, uh, so one of the options you didn't uh, choose to get were the (laughs) brakes. So to, you know, you've been given this wonderful vehicle for this life, your body, your being, and sometimes we forget that we have brakes, or we just left the brakes at the factory or somewhere. And the, the precepts are really brakes. Like if you're getting close to wanting to kill someone, put on the brakes. If you're getting close to actively harming someone, put on the brakes. Don't do it. If, you get on the, uh, if you're uh, you know, close to wanting to take what is not given, to steal, put on the brakes. If you're going to harm someone, anyone, not even your partner, but other people, through your sexuality, put on your brakes. If you're going to uh, uh, lie and you see it coming, put on the brakes. If you want to, um, you know, and then in Buddhism they say, if you're going to start getting intoxicated with anything, drugs or alcohol, put on the brakes, don't do it. And um, And this is a way of making yourself safe and making the world around you safe. Some of us, you know, some of you, perhaps, who feel like you can engage in alcohol and drugs safely, which maybe you can, you might think twice about if you're contributing to a world where other people are safe from the influence of these things. We're in it together. And what we do has some influence around where we go. If nothing else, I, I'm very concerned about how I spend my money. I think of money as having an ethical spin on it. And, uh, you know, I live on donations, the dana that people give. I, I feel like the, mo- the, the money that I have to spend for my life and my family has this wonderful, profound spin of generosity as part of it. And so I don't want to go out and buy cigarettes with it. You know, what would you think about that? <laughs> you know, get a lot of done out by cigars. You know, I I I want to, not only do I want to be careful with it, but I also want to contribute to our society by continuing this, the, an ethical spin, a good spin on it. The, and so I'll try to buy things or use the money in ways that kind of go along and that kind of continue, that kind of way. And so... Uh, you know, even though you can buy, drink alcohol happily and easily and safely, um, is that, you know, what spin are you, is you, are you putting on those dollars as they go, or those electrons now, as they go out into the world? <laughs> and um, so this, I think it's an interesting uh, qu- thing to consider. So one reflection I have is that with the more fake news there is, the more we have to really be impeccable and careful with our behavior. One of the ways I see it operating is uh, with all the self righteousness that's going on around uh, uh, identity politics and about politics in general and uh, divisiveness that comes along. I think that uh, when we are angry towards others, when we shame others, when we kind of box them in, um, that uh, we're actually harming ourselves as well. That anything that limits our inner thriving, closes it down, um, you know, is uh, because creating division between people um, is harming ourselves. So to be real careful with what we do and how we do it, find ways to engage in changing the world, changing others, that doesn't feel, uh, put people, doesn't shame people or criticize people or make people feel less. Um, there's a I saw over in uh, UC Berkeley. There's a new little uh, project uh, on um, that's called Zero Shame, 100% Empowerment. So you know, so let's empower people, encourage people to change and rather than rather than close them down. So then um, um, the other thing I was thinking about that along this line is, um, what was it? It's gone from my mind now. Um, oh yes, is uh, this idea of intentionality, that it's all about our intention. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I didn't mean to, co- I'm not causing any harm. I have no intention, my intentions are good. You know, I, you know I'm not doing anything is, um, uh, so it's okay, you don't have to think about it. Uh, Many of us are causing, probably, I I assume all of us in some ways here are causing harm unintentionally that if you were the only person in California who ever drove a car, even if it was a really smoky, polluting car, it really would have negligible, negligible effect on the air quality. And the people who live near freeways would not get asthma and all kinds of cancers and difficult things. Because it's one car, right? But when you have 36 million or something like, that, I don't know how many people, 24 million cars in California, many of them concentrated in urban areas, Your unintentional, I'm so innocent, (laughs) I'm not doing anything, is contributing to the aggregate of it all. Yes, I have no intention. As we look at climate change and environmental destruction that's going on in our planet, it's billions of people who have no intention to cause any harm, to cause any damage. Billions of people who are off the hook because of their inten- because of their intention, is th- and the harm just gets perpetuated, right? So, in many many ways, intentionality is not good enough. In fact, if you, uh, it's been a, it's kind of a myth that's been perpetuated that the that the Buddha said that what's important about um, our ethical behavior has to do with the intentions behind it. It doesn't seem like he said that at all. For the Buddha, he analyzed our behavior, the ethics of it, based on the consequences the behavior has, if it causes harm or causes benefit. And that requires some study. That requires being awake and paying attention of what you say and what you do, and even maybe what, you, what you think. Um, what kind of effect that has on the world around you. To be hyper-individualistic, it's all about me and I can just take care of myself and just watch my own intentions, without any attention to the impact our life has is not not the Buddha's way of analyzing our life. It has to do with how, you know, the, the effect in the world. And one of the ways that this is stated I, that I love in the, by the Buddha. Uh, and it's a statement that can be seen as a summary or encapsulation of all of Buddhism. So it's a very powerful statement. So it goes like this. A wise person does not, is not motivated to cause harm to oneself, to others, to self and others, or to the whole world. A wise person of great wisdom is concerned with the welfare for oneself, the welfare for others, the welfare for both self and others, and the welfare of the whole world. Those are consequentialist ways of thinking. We're interested in what the consequences are gonna be for ourselves and the world around us. That's the analysis that the Buddha has. And so I think that as the world with the environmental challenges we have and economic challenges we have, to have that on the forefront of our concern, all these areas, self and other, is very different than some of the challenging uh, views we have these days in the United States that are all about me. You know, I have a right, I deserve, uh, no one should tell me what to do. I can live you know I can live independently and um, and you know so it 's and my intentions are good, but are they really are they really are the are the consequences really good so that 's another way the, and the third way to that needs i think needs to be reconsidered or a third kind of aspect of Buddhist practice that I think is really important for our modern modern world is that um, we've been learning more and more, and I'm certainly learning in the last probably five years, um, more and more about what's called implicit bias. And uh, it's kind of amazing what we're learning about how um, assumptions, beliefs, attitudes that we have about other people uh, are invisible to oneself, so maybe subconscious, and that, uh, and that it involves bias, prejudice. Uh, one example is ageism. And uh, that uh, there's now the, all these studies of implicit bias that, um, you know, there's a, there's a huge bias for young people in all kinds of ways, in favor of young people, and against older people. But what's why I want to mention this, what's particularly interesting, is that um, o- older people have just as much of The same bias <laughs> as younger people isn't that amazing so it, sometimes you know it's you know it's just so internalized it's so part of the culture that we carry with these bias so that this is true for all kinds of isms. One of the things i've noticed in the last five years that it used to be the the the, the suffix ism referred to beliefs now it seems to refer to Un, you know, implicit unconscious bias that we carry with us, attitudes we have, and so we have, um, you know, sort of ageism, we have racism, we have ableism, we have, um, I don't know, sexism, sexism. speciesism, speciesism. Mm-hmm. all kinds of things, right? And um, and there, you can you can go online now. I forget uh, and take an implicit bias test. And I took it a few years ago. And uh, it's for all the kinds of different categories. You can choose, the place I went to, you could choose different categories of ism that you want to check yourself out on. And um, and what was surprising to me was that um, my, before I did the exam, my self, um, my, my self evaluation around this was that, um, was that I was, I had less implicit bias than the test showed, I did all these different categories, and uh, I was on the minor side, the small side, but it was still more than I thought I had, and so wow, this is interesting. That my self evaluation was n- was seemingly not accurate, so, so that's kind of kind of the nature of implicit bias. And so um, it's you know if you, if you have a chance, I would encourage you to do some of this. It's kind of a little bit of a wake-up call to do these tests. And what's the one that, uh, does someone know the name of the one that's in, coming out of Harvard University? IAT. What? I-A-T, implicit bias test. Uh, oh, so in, if, you, if you go implicit bias test, uh, 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 you can find it and it's, you know, I'd encourage you to do it. So how this relates to Buddhism though is that um, this the samadhi part the part of mental training, training the heart, uh, uh, creates the conditions internally where the mind, where our attention, mindfulness, is able to watch much more carefully the thoughts, the attitudes, the reactivity that we have to the people we encounter and to what goes on in the world. And also the quieter and stiller the mind gets it's not just the p- purpose of being still and quiet. The stiller and quiet the mind gets, the m- more earlier and more subtle we can see the arising of reactivity, of judgments, of beliefs that are happening. I don't know if it's gonna catch all of our implicit bias, but uh, we'll catch it more and more. We'll see the beginnings of it. Oh, there it is. If the mind is uh, crowded with thoughts and ideas and desires and wishes and stressed out and involved in all kinds of wonderful projects and all kinds of wonderful judgments of everyone else, um, there's too too much going on in the mind to really watch the birth of all these little teeny little subtle decisions that are made all the time. So to be able to catch this implicit bias earlier is, part of, is what if you really learn to meditate and settle yourself and settle yourself and learn to be mindful and carry that into your daily life, you'll start catching this much better. And this is really crucial for our society as a whole, I think, as things go along here. Because um, another thing that I've been learning over the, probably over the last 10 years in a way that I never dreamt of before and I actually now I can see it operating Uh, in amazing uh, ways, is how small, little, seemingly inconsequential, implicit bias, or bias can be uh, implicit preference for one kind of person, if a lot of people are doing it, it adds up, just like the driving thing, right? It adds up. And so now I see, now I'm seeing so, so many ways in which um, white people in our culture get a little preferential treatment. Sometimes huge. <laughs> but uh, what I'm focusing now is, is little preferential. Here's a little bit, here's a little, here's a little bit. And it adds up and it adds up. And then if it happens 10,000 times a day, each time... Unnoticed, each time just part of the fabric of texture of society, part of just kind of normal, just this is how the world is, is not seen. But you know, if it adds up to a huge advantage that white people have in so many areas in our life, everyone's innocent. I didn't do it, <laughs> and um, and this you know implicit bias thing in favor of white people. Remember that the old people had implicit bias against old people (laughs) or preference for for certain people. So people sometimes who are not white also have that for white people. Sometimes a little kind of give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt or a little bit extra push here and there. And it adds up to a lot. So as a society as a whole and how these stresses, stresses are developing in our society and being seen much more clearly now, I think it's really useful, really important that we can, uh, that in terms of living an ethical life, that we train ourselves, that we do something like meditation practice, that we do some kind of inner mental development that allows us to really settle and quiet the mind, strengthen the mind, or to use Dalai Lama's language, uh, create clarity in the mind, so that we can really start seeing more and more the teeniest little reactivities we have, uh, cringing or opening or going for or against, so we can take responsibility for it and be much more careful. And um, in all kinds of ways in our society. So, in this way, I, I hope that to today's talk, I've kind of tried to re present the idea of Buddhist ethics in a way that maybe is more relevant for how much our society is changing. And I wanted to highlight that it has changed a lot. I mean, all of you know that, I know. But to take that change into account and really be willing to change accordingly, to get yourself in harmony with what's happening or, in, in, or wise about that relationship to what's happening is really, um, uh, you know, appropriate for someone who wants to live in a, a life grounded in wanting to live for the welfare of oneself, the welfare of others, the welfare of both self and others, and the welfare for all beings, the whole world.